Would you join me in prayer as we admit together that what was about to happen is foolishness on a human level to think that somehow my preaching is going to do anything that would have any significant spiritual contribution or that we would be able to even follow and comprehend and move along and understand spiritual matters apart from the Holy Spirit's help. Let's uh, ask God to help us during this time. You are a holy God, holy Father, holy Son, and holy Spirit, three in one. We come to you humbly this day, acknowledging that we are in need of your help. And so we ask that your Spirit, who has led the authors of Scripture to record the words that are before us, Today in your word, Lord, may those words be once again applied to our thoughts and our minds that we might, Lord, be made aware of perhaps some things and reality of parts of reality that we have ignored or somehow lived not really focused on. We pray, Father, that you might apply these things to our hearts and minds, that we might appreciate afresh and anew that you truly are a holy God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please follow along. I'm going to start today's message with a quote. And since you don't have it in front of you, it's going to be hard to follow, but it's very significant. And I'd like you to place place careful attention to this. This is from A.W. Tozer from his book called Knowledge of the Holy. Tozer writes this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'm going to say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any person is not what he or she, at a given time, may say or do, but what that person, in their heart, deep in the deepness of their heart, what they conceive of God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Those are very profound and thought-provoking words. So I'm going to turn the question and pose it to you. What comes into your mind when you think about God? This is an absolutely critical question, an important question, because... Our conception of God directly impacts our devotion to God. And if we have an inaccurate view of the true and living God and His attributes, we will invariably become idolatrous worshipers. It is imperative that we search the Scriptures with biblical revelation to help us develop an accurate concept of God. 
And the God who made all things has revealed Himself in creation. He has revealed Himself in revelation, that is, the Scriptures, and He has revealed Himself in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, His one and only Son. Last week we began a new series in which we began looking at and considering the attributes of God, and we looked and considered the omnipresence of God. But if I really had thought things through carefully, I should have started uh, and examining this series with the topic we're looking at today, the holiness of God. Now in this message today, I want to break it up into two sections. The first section I would like to consider and address one component of God's holiness and think about that for a moment and how this truth then directly affects how we relate to God. And then the second section, I'm going to take another aspect of God's holiness and do the same thing. Think about how that will affect and have a practical impact upon our personal devotion. Turn with your Bibles then to Revelation chapter 15, page 1467 in your pew Bible. 1467, Revelation 15. We find a song was written and composed following the time of celebration and great victory that God gave the children of Israel when they came through the Red Sea and saw the Egyptian armies uh, conquered and overwhelmed by the flooding water as it collapsed upon them. And God rescued his people and saw them safely, safely through the Red Sea. They composed the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. It's interesting that that same song is repeated in the New Testament here in Revelation chapter 15. The first one was sung by the children of Israel upon the great celebration of that victory over the Egyptian army. This one is sung by angels of heaven. Look what it says, verses 3 and 4. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God. The Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, you King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. If you know anything about reading the pages of Scripture, you certainly, I hope, would not argue the premise that I'm assuming today is, and that is that the God revealed in the Bible is holy. Psalm 99 repeats the same idea. I'll give several examples here. Psalm 99, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. And then through Moses, his servant, God instructed the people of Israel to do the following in Leviticus chapter 20. You are to be holy to me, God says, for I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. So throughout the Bible, God himself claims to be holy, and the creatures that he made exalt him as a God of holiness. And then that question I want to raise in light of that is, to what does God's holiness refer? When we affirm, as the Bible does over and over and over again, that God is holy, what are we saying about God? Well, that's my first point here. Holiness as separation from creation. The Hebrew word used for holy literally means separated. 
It means marked off. It means to withdraw from common use. So when the authors of Scripture used holy in reference to God, they intended one or two things when they used that term. And the first is this. God is separate from, or we could say He is transcendent, He is separate from His creation. Now, the Bible celebrates and makes much of God's holiness because there is only one Creator God. And because He is Creator God, He is in a different category. He is separate from all the rest of creation which He has made. Seems pretty logical and reasonable to affirm that. And God is therefore unique from all other beings in heaven and on earth. He is transcendent and therefore He is, in that sense, unapproachable. Isaiah 57 says this, Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. See, God cannot be compared to any other creature. He stands in His own class. And He is incomprehensible. He is mysterious because of that. And God's holiness is not something that He decides to do. It's not something that He decides to be, it is intrinsic in his very essence, in his nature. And this is why God must be dealt with on his terms. Those who approach God, the God most most holy, they must act consistent with his nature. He is preeminent and transcendent. Now, God is far above us. And we can almost suggest that God, because he is holy, he is other than us. And in the sense that he's different from all the living things which have been created. Now, I sort of said that as many times I know to say it, but I hope that's clear to you. When we talk about God, we're talking about separateness in terms of his essence and nature. Now, this helps explain why there are so many individuals in Scripture who, when they encountered the revealed presence of God, they experienced an overpowering and an overwhelming sense of awe due to their creatureliness. The fact that they are a created being all of a sudden made aware of the presence of the holy God. If you want to find an interesting example of this, look back at Exodus sometime. You might write yourself a note. Exodus, look at chapters 18 and 19 and 20, and you'll read the account of God revealing himself to the children of Israel there on Mount Sinai and some of the interesting comments it makes. It says, after God revealed the truth to Moses, he came down from the mountain. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet with the uh, mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, how did they react? Like, oh man, that's cool. Is that the way they would react to it? They would say this, they trembled and stood at a distance. They sensed that they were in the presence of the holy creator God. They were filled with awe. I find it interesting that one of the writers, Rudolf Otto, who wrote a book called The Idea of the Holy, he tried to summarize the reaction that people have had to a sense of the holiness of God and being in the presence of such a holy God. And he writes this, Oftentimes those people are hushed. It's not a lot of jabbering and talking incessantly. A hushed, there's a trembling, a speechless humility of the creature in the presence of that which is a mystery inexpressible and above all 
creatures. I can't help but think of Isaiah when we think of the holiness of God. We read that earlier in our scripture reading. In the sixth chapter of the book of prophecy that he wrote, Isaiah provided some helpful insights into how God's holiness is used to call attention to God's separateness. You see, how do you emphasize that God is separate, that he is not on the same level as you and I? Well, one way is to emphasize it again and again in ways that make an impact. Now, if you're going to emphasize something in our language, we have a number of ways to do that. In English, we can make words emphatic in writing, for example, by underlining the words. Uh, We also can make words emphatic when we use all capital letters, like when you send an email and they're all capital letters. Hopefully people are going to read that a little more carefully and notice what you're saying. You can also use another font that's maybe a little bolder of some kind. Uh, You can use exclamation points. You get the idea. If you're going to draw attention to something you're trying to emphasize, there are many ways to do that in English, oftentimes in the written form. In Hebrew, they used another method. They would use the method of repetition. In order to emphasize something, rather than underline it, you repeat it, you put it once, you repeat it again, and then if you really, really, really want to emphasize it, you would repeat it three times. The more the word is repeated, the more it's emphasized. It's very interesting. When you sort of have that in mind, you can now understand things a little more clearly. It's it's one of the the incidents of Jeremiah. He's preaching to people in his day and age who really didn't care a bit about what he was saying. They were convinced that everything that Jeremiah was warning about, there was judgment coming, there was going to be disaster if they didn't repent. He said their response to His message was, ah, we're not worried about that because the false teachers were saying, this is their message. Peace, peace. Everything's going to be fine. What in the world are you talking about, Jeremiah? It's peace, peace. That was the message as it summarized in Jeremiah chapter 6. But here in Isaiah 6, what do the seraphim call out to each other? Holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. There is no greater way to emphasize that than the way in which they have recorded this particular statement about God. The whole earth is full of His glory. If there is one attribute of God that we cannot overemphasize, it is the holiness of God. No other divine attribute in all of Scripture is mentioned three times in succession. Nowhere nowhere in Scripture do you have anyone saying or recorded of anyone else in heaven or on earth saying that God is love, love, love. Nowhere in Scripture do we find anyone else saying God is merciful, merciful, merciful. He is. And those are wonderful truths. And we'll talk about all these different attributes of God. But the only attribute of God where we find this triplicate emphasis, the, the emphasis of saying We cannot emphasize this more strongly than we are in this particular passage is the holiness of God Almighty. It's even repeated in the New Testament. Did you know that? Not only in Isaiah 6 and the vision of Isaiah, but also in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. The four living creatures, we read there, continually cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy! Is God, Lord God Almighty. 
who was, who is, and who is to come. So God is separate in the sense that he is different than you and me. What's the application of that to our lives? Let me start by suggesting that if God is truly transcendent, he is separate from all of his creatures that he made, he is worthy and deserves our reverence. Because God is holy, the psalmist in Psalm 99 calls God's people to worship him by assuming the lowest possible position they can assume. It says to worship at his footstool. You see, the feet in that culture were considered to be the most, uh, shall we say, uncomfortable place to be at someone's feet because feet were considered to be uh, nasty and unwashed and usually dirty and that kind of thing. It's the lowest part of your body. And so the idea of being at someone's footstool is the lowest position. That's where the slaves, that's where people who are the lowest uh, person doing the menial tasks of society. And so he's saying if you're going to approach God in his holiness, you need to humble yourself and show him a sense of reverence. In other words, rather than having a shallow and superficial view of God and relating to God as if God is one of your peers, as if God is just someone who you can just approach Him as one who is you know, on your level. Rather than doing that, if we understand the holiness of God, we must approach Him as one who is worthy of our utmost respect and admiration and awe. God is to be feared. This is why the third commandment, if you recall, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, the third prohibits the taking of the Lord's name in vain. Why is that? The name, by the the way, means His person. So don't take His person or His name in vain. Don't use it in vain. What's He saying? Well, He's saying that because God is so great, and awesome and holy. Don't use his name in common everyday curse words or everyday trying to reinforce your promises and somehow making him the one who's going to make you into a person who can be believed and honest. No, his name is to be revered because his person is to be revered. It's interesting also to think of Jesus in his prayer. In his prayer and the, uh, the model he gave for the disciples, it's not his prayer, it's a prayer for disciples. He's showing them to pray in this manner. He says what? Our Father who is in heaven, what comes next? Hallowed be your name. That's the first request. What are we saying when we say that? Did you know that that word, hallowed, hallowed, is the same root word from which we get to make holy, to set it apart. May your name be set apart. May your name, God, be considered separate from all the other names. May your name, which represents your person, may your person be considered to be holy by people, including me. It's really a request that says, may you be revered. May you be highly respected because you are truly holy. According to Romans chapter 3, One of the characteristics of people who devalue God's holiness is that they do not fear God. And I would dare say 
there are many people in our culture today who celebrate the fact they have no fear of God. They try to live as best they can with no thought of God and without any concern about the reality of a holy God. But that's talking about people in general. Let's talk about us. Let's talk about you and me. Have you ever known a time in your life? Have you ever had an experience? Have you ever had moments in your life in which you heeded the call of Psalm 99 and you were found to be trembling before the most holy God? Humbled before Him. And since you have an awareness of the transcendence of God, were you aware of the fact that God is at the center of the universe and that you find yourself relating to the one who is at the center of all things rather than seeing yourself at the center of all things? You see, God is supreme. He is lifted up over everyone and everything in all of creation. And God does whatever He pleases. He is to be feared and revered. Why? Because He is holy. I'm convinced that as I look back at my life, I'm thankful that I learned to fear, in a sense, to have respect for my father, my earthly father, who would confront me and help me realize, son, you are not the center of the universe and everything isn't always going to go your way. And when you're out of line, someone's going to challenge you and point that out to you in a loving but firm way. Because I believe that was how God began to shape my life to realize how much more do I need to humble myself and realize I need to fear God who is far greater than any human father. It begins with a sense of the holiness of God as separated from creation. Let's look at now second aspect of the holiness of God and considering Him as being one who is separate. God also is separated from all that is profane and all that is sinful. In other words, on your outline, number two, I said holiness as separation from creation's corruption. Creation's corruption. We could say, in this other sense of the holiness of God, that God is incorruptible. He cannot be marred and polluted by sin. Look at Psalm chapter 5, verse 4. I'm going to let you find it in a second there. 652 in your pew Bible, page 652. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4. While you're looking there, I'm going to read a couple other verses. Listen along as you're looking. In the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. Do you have that now in front of you? Chapter 5, verse 4 of Psalm. You are not a God that takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. John the Apostle in his first epistle in different words affirmed the same thing when he wrote, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The Bible affirms that God is holy in the sense that he's set apart from all defilement. And therefore, sin elicits and evokes from God his disgust and his hatred 
God hates all that is evil with a holy passion. And this is one of the reasons why the psalmist mentioned the beauty of God's holiness. You see, there is... Let's, I'll go ahead and give you that quote. There's a quote in your notes there. We're going to have to give you that in, here, in a second here. The fact that God is in His beauty of His holiness. I, I skipped it under point number one there. If you back up. According to Jerry Bridges, holiness is the perfection of all of God's other attributes. It is the perfection of all of God's other attributes. That's why we see the beauty of God, in a sense, is His holiness. Because it, it, it governs all the other aspects of God. What we mean by that is that God's holiness affects His power. His power is not an unrestrained power that can be utilized for evil purposes. His power is a holy power, always accomplishing what He desires to do, which is ultimately God-glorifying and good. It is His wisdom that is holy wisdom, that is His approach in accomplishing His will, is never corrupted by sinful desires or intentions. His wrath is a holy wrath, because it is never wrongly meted out. It is never capricious or impulsive. His wrath is holy. Now, how do we apply this to our own lives? Uh, can you give me about six sermons and we can sort of unpack this a little bit? It's very difficult to try to make just a few thoughts here uh, in taking one of these uh, attributes of God per week, but that's what I'm going to do. Application, well, because God is holy, He's separated from the corruption of creation. Those who desire a relationship with Him must approach Him again on His terms. Apart from Jesus Christ, sinners like you and me can never find cleansing. We can never find healing from our corruption due to sin. You see, our own, if we are depending on our own attempts... To perform acts of piety, we will never, in our own abilities, our, no, our own efforts, we will never find ourselves fully cleansed and fully uh, resolved this issue of our corruption in sin. By recognizing the horror of our corruption due to our sin, sin that affects our thoughts, sin that affects our desires, sin that affects our words that we say and our actions, that when you compare our sinful thoughts, actions, and words to the moral purity of God, we are then to join Isaiah and we call down upon ourselves judgment and doom like Isaiah did. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. If you begin to ponder and consider the ways in which sin has corrupted so many parts of who you are, and how you think, and what you say, and how you act, and what you long for, then you will agree with Isaiah, and you will say, essentially, the word there means, I am annihilated, I am destroyed, I am devastated, because I have become aware of the wretchedness of my corruption due to sin, when compared with the holy God. One author made this helpful application when he thought about meditating on that passage in Isaiah 6. He said this, If we don't understand the holiness of God, we will not understand our own sinfulness. And if we don't understand how heinous our sin is, we will not understand the consequences of it. 
Salvation will be meaningless to us. To see even the smallest glimpse of God's holiness is to be devastated. I wonder if you've ever prayed with the Apostle Paul, wretched person that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Romans 7. And the only correct answer is, my friend, Jesus, in the person of the Holy Spirit, who ministers to us what Jesus has accomplished for us. Jesus came to rescue those who are corrupt due to the presence and power of sin and those who are facing the penalty of sin. Jesus is the one who is the only one who lived a holy life. He's the one who died as our substitute on the cross to satisfy the holy demands of God's law so that sinners like you and me who are corrupt and who feel the weight of that corruption, who understand what it is to be devastated before a holy God, that we can find forgiveness from sin's penalty, and we also can find sanctifying grace to overcome the power of sin, and ultimately we will become a people who are filled with hope of someday the presence of the corruption of sin will no longer be in us because of Jesus. And the work He begins by His grace, the work He will complete by His grace. Arthur Pink summarized the connection between God's holiness and His redemptive grace in this way. I think this is in your notes. He has a very helpful quote here. How do we connect our corruption with Jesus' provision? Follow this carefully. Pink writes, That which God's holiness demanded, that is, sin needs to be punished, sin needs to be removed, God's grace has provided in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Praise God. So we come to Jesus because Jesus is God's provision for corrupted sinners like you and me. We trust in Him. We trust in His atoning sacrifice and in His resurrection to provide us access to God, acceptance before God, and also assurance that someday there will be that full restoration in what we were designed to be. We're designed to live whole lives, lives that are lived enjoying God, in lives that are no longer burdened with the corruption of sin within us. Someday we have the assurance of full restoration and cleansing so that we can know and enjoy God most holy forever and ever and ever. And so my question comes to you this day. Have you ever trembled before God and cried out to Him, Lord Jesus, save me and rescue me? I have no ability to change the corruption. I need you to give me a new heart. I need you to come and transform me on the inside. I claim what you did on the cross in a simple act of faith. And then surrender to Him. Claim Him as your Lord and Master. Having felt the weight of, my, of His sin, of your sin, my friend, you will know the joy As the Spirit works in you, you will know the joy of feeling that weight fall off your shoulders like Christian did when he came to the cross in the the, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. There is a sense in which God becomes precious to us. We can delight before the Holy God because of Jesus Christ and His work on our behalf. And so we come to Christ. We come to Christ in repentance and faith. And God, at that moment, will consider us to be set apart. We, at that point, will therefore then belong to God. 
We are His. We've been set apart as belonging to Him. We are His children by faith. And therefore, we are not only set apart, but we are also set apart in the process of becoming like God. We are in the process now of God working in us in this moral aspect of God's holiness to make us more like Him. And the Apostle Peter unpacks this in 1 Peter chapter 1. Maybe you can find that in your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. 1 Peter 1, verse 14. Peter is arguing that, listen, if you understand the calling of God and the work of God in setting you apart unto Himself, then you'll understand the practical significance of that in everyday life. Even though you may be called to suffer, even though you may have difficult times in your life, even though things don't seem to be going very well, which is true of those he was writing in 1 Peter, he writes this nonetheless. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former desires which were yours in ignorance. That is, when you lived as an unbeliever, you just did whatever you desired. It was your natural, uh, natural way of living is to live for yourself. Do whatever turned you on. Do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever. You live for me. That's what we all do when we were unbelievers because we had no fear of God. And we had no sense of His calling to become more like Him. And so... When we were ignorant, ignorant of who God was and what He's really calling us to do, we're not to do that anymore. Don't be conformed to that. But, He says, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. How? Even in your behavior. In the way in which you relate to other people. In the way in which you seek to respect the fact that God has called you to not be a person who is dishonest. Not a person who is out to use people. Not as a person who is... <clears throat> a person who is only living for yourself. He calls us to be holy in our behavior because it's written, you shall be holy for I, the God who called you and the God who has set you apart, the God who has rescued you and redeemed you, you're to be holy because you belong to me. Now, what's he doing? He's quoting from Leviticus. It's fascinating. That was a statement made to the people of Israel. He's now saying this is true also of the people of God in the New Covenant. And Peter insists it's not appropriate to continue to live in the ongoing characteristic patterns as if you were an unbeliever. He's not saying you have to be absolutely perfect. He's saying you need to live a life that's set apart unto God and to show the, the general pattern of your life. Don't live like you used to be before you regenerated. And so he says, those who are children of God should no longer be characterized by these ongoing patterns of behavior. That is, we put off the old way of dealing with things and we put on new ways of dealing with things. As we, what? See ourselves becoming more and more like God. As a matter of fact, this process of being made holy is not only essential and reasonable, it is required. Hebrews 12 Verse 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4 affirms the same thing. God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. You look up the context of that verse. 1 Thessalonians 4. It is in the context of living a holy life in your sexual life. If you're going to connect the fact that you are a person who relates to God as a child of God, you need to relate that into how you deal with other people and deal with God and deal with, with your situations of living in a, a sexually 
corrupted society we live in, you need to realize that applies to how I deal with my sexual brokenness. I constantly need to put off and put on. I need to stop doing the things that are not pleasing to God. I need to pursue those things that are appropriate to God. You say, what does that mean? Read 1 Thessalonians 4 and you know, unpack it. Paul reminded the Corinthian church of all the churches he wrote, he reminds them at the beginning of one, they had a problem. Why? Look at the society they lived in. People lived all sorts of unrestrained life. It was living it in ways that were out of control in every area. And it was affecting the church. And he says to the church in verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, I'm writing to you who are called to be holy, set apart to God, to be more and more like Him. If the grace of Christ and salvation does not motivate you to live a holy life and to increasingly learn to hate sin as God hates sin, then it seems to me you've lost sight of the one who now abides in you and whose work is designed to complete in you the work of the Holy Spirit. He's designed to make you more and more like Christ. If saving grace is not linked to sanctifying grace, in terms of your ongoing progressive growth and holiness of life, you have reason then to begin to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Now, it is a progressive sanctification. I'm saying to you, holiness is not a momentary experience. There isn't a sense in which you come to faith, you are set apart to God at that moment. But then there is a process of becoming more like Christ, and that is an ongoing, lifelong process. So yes, there's a struggle. Yes, there are ups and downs, no question. But it's the direction you're headed in is the key. The ongoing, general direction. And here's my last point. The more we contemplate the moral holiness of God, the more we contemplate God's hatred for sin, I believe God can use it as an effective deterrent to trifling with sin to somehow justifying in our minds, rationalizing in our minds, oh, it's just a small thing, no big deal. It's not a big deal. Nobody knows about it. The more we understand and think and contemplate the holiness of God and we think about the cross of Christ and the costly payment that Jesus made on that cross in order to take us and set us apart and to indeed deal with the corruption of sin within us, it ought to motivate us to see how disgusting and revolting sin is to God and to realize how much His compassion has been shown to us, how much He is there wanting to see us change and providing the means whereby that can happen. We are to separate ourselves from all that displeases God. You say, well, that seems like a pretty high high standard. Uh, yes. But it seems like a pretty amazing process and provision that God has made, the cross of Jesus Christ, our holy Son of God, who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Let's pray. Holy Father, It is my prayer today that as we talk about you as a holy God and we've heard the scriptures affirm over and over again that you are holy, holy, holy. I pray that you might bring about a sense of trembling 
in every heart that's never felt the weight of sin like they are today. Lord, I pray that you might bring low every proud sinner who sees themselves as good and better than somebody else and not as bad as so-and-so. Lord, help us to see us as we truly are, ruined, devastated because of our corruption of sin when we think of you and your absolute holiness. And then, Lord, I pray that you would show us the cross. Oh, Father, help us to embrace afresh and anew, if perhaps today for the first time for some people who are here today, to realize the cross is Christ's payment for us, Ruined sinners. Our only hope in ever seeing this, pro- this problem of our corruption of sin. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your work in us to make us more like yourself. Lord, may we get our, our focus upon Christ. May he be our hope. May he be the one who motivates us. May his humble, selfless death on the cross the great love that he showed to us. May it, Lord, cause us to love sin less and to love you more. Help those of us, Lord, who struggle with sin. Help those of us who are entrapped, who find ourselves stuck in patterns that seem very discouraging and we feel weighed down by our sin. Lord Jesus, will you give us, we pray, a fresh sense of the Holy Spirit's power to work in us to help us break that power of sin, that we would put off the old things and put on the new. And that you, Holy Spirit, would fill our minds with a sense of the awesomeness of the holiness of you, our God. And we would find our hope in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. This time we're going to...